Well, this morning is just a little unusual. First of all, Paul is not leading worship, obviously. Uh, um, he, um, in case you didn't know, I think we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but he is uh, in kind of a residency program uh, as a chaplain in a hospital. And so this morning he is ministering to people in the hospital. So that's where Paul is. And Wesley is preaching to a congregation over in Snailville. They needed a guest speaker, and so uh, it all kind of fell together <laughs> this week. And so I was like, I'm not doing both. So, um, but here's the cool thing: the 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 blessed thing we have is we got somebody that um, he pops his head in every once in a while here um, because he actually lives in the neighborhood. He could walk here. Did you walk this morning? No, didn't walk. <laughs> Saved my energy. <laughs> Well, I, I, I want to talk just for a second about Jim Donovan. Jim Donovan uh, first, and uh, he's probably surprised that I call him Jim, Jim Donovan without putting the doctor before it. But uh, Dr. Jim Donovan, first I knew him as my college president when I was over at what was formerly known as Atlanta Christian College, Nell Point University, right across the street. And uh, not only... Was he my president? He was also one of my professors. He, he's, um, the first time I went to jail, it was his fault. <laughs> the only time I've been to jail, it was his fault. <laughs> Should I tell him? Or just let him wonder? <laughs> I'm just going to let you wonder. Um, so, there's that. And uh, he was also a mentor. He was also a counselor uh, with with Stacy and me uh, in a, a difficult time in our relationship, and how I love him for that. But I tell you what, I love him most for it's this. There he is, right there. And guess where that is? Right there. Right there. That's right. Pretty cool. So, uh, Dr. Donovan, I, I love you and love you forever, and I appreciate you and looking forward to hearing you bring the word this morning. Thank you, Jamie. Who are those kids up there, huh? <laughs> Good night. You know, I've, I've got so much to say to you, and I don't want to take too much time away from the sermon, but Jamie mentioned it. Uh, he and Stacy were students of mine, but Wesley was as well. As a matter of fact, Wesley was youth minister at East Point Christian Church. Some of y'all may remember that. And probably three decades before that, I was youth minister at East Point Christian Church. (laughs) And Jamie mentioned that we did a wedding here, and our Robin and my twin sons were baptized right there. So, you know, there's some places that are just kind of special. First time I came in this room was in 1969. So I've told you how old I am. But uh, I just want to also tell you what high regard I have for Wesley and Kim, Stacy, Jamie. They're, uh, uh, I just hold them the highest regard. As a matter of fact, since Wesley's not here, I can tell this. I was preaching down the road about four miles, Southwest Christian Church, and Wesley was at East Point Christian, and I remember telling him, I said, now don't leave there, Wesley, without telling me, because I want to bring you over here. Well, uh, as you all know, they ran down to Milledgeville, and he <laughs> preached down there. But um, anyway, enough of that. Let's, let's pray and get into God's Word. Lord, thank you so much for this great time together to sing praise to you, to fellowship, to worship your holy name. And we pray now that as we worship you through 
reading your word and thinking about your word that it would become alive in us and it'd be alive in my words and Lord, I ask you to cleanse me of my sin that I might be a vessel worthy to handle this truth today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Have you ever had... No, that's a silly question. Let me start over. Lately, have you had days where you just wish you'd stayed in bed? Well, that resonates with you, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I know Wesley does a lot of researching for his sermons and all. So last night I re- did a little research on that topic, signs, when you know it's going to be a bad day. Okay, I got some good signs. When you ought to stay in bed. The birds singing outside your window is a vulture. Just get back in bed. You get a paper cut from a get well card. Guys, when people send your wife sympathy cards... On your anniversary. You know it's going to be a bad day. Your twin brother or sister forgets your birthday. You go, you go to a fast food restaurant and order. And they ask you if you want the senior citizens a discount. And you're not I. You're 37. When people think you're 40. And you really are. When you fill your car up and the amount of gas you put in your car is is more than your car's worth, you know it's you know it's a bad day. You jump on uh, 285 out here and you settle in and you notice in front of you there's some motorcycles and it says Hell's Angels on the back and your horn gets stuck. It's going to be a bad day. But my favorite happened in Stark, Florida. And y'all may not know Stark, Florida, but it's like Jackson, Georgia. It's the home of capital punishment for Florida. Years ago, when old Sparky was still being used, uh, the electric chair, there was a guy who was, it was his day to be, sit in that chair. And as he's walking down the hall to make that lonely walk, the three guys with, with whom he'd been living for years want to send him off with some encouragement. And the first one says, God bless you. And that's pretty encouraging because he's going to meet his maker. Second one thinks, oh, man, I was going to say that. So he says, good luck. Not so encouraging. The third guy thinks, man, I don't know what to say now. And so he hollers out as the guy disappears around the corner. More power to you. (laughs) Not going to be a good day. But I want you to think about something this morning. I really hadn't thought about it much, but it dawned on me when I read this great story and understand all that's swirling around the life of Jesus that he had some days that were tough days. And I think the one before us today is a tough day. And I'm going to... Look at Mark 6, verses 30 through 44, and the truth be told, we could look in any one of the four Gospels for this story. As a matter of fact, you may not be aware of this, but this is the only story, day, if you will, in the life of Jesus, that all four Gospels capture it that's not in the Passion Week. Does that make sense? All four of the Gospels include this day. And there's no other day that they all four include in this way 
that's not in the last week of Jesus' life. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, and we're going to walk through verses 30 through 44. Now, as you turn to that and look to that, and before I start reading that, I want you to understand this. All, like I said, all that's swirling around, and even though this is in the sixth chapter of Mark, it's getting late in Jesus' ministry. All right? Because if you look over in John 6, it, it doesn't indicate that it's late, but in John 13, they're in the last three or four days of Jesus' life. So Mark 6, this is accelerating, okay? Pace is picking up. It's in Matthew 14. And so this is getting late. He just, Jesus had just sent the disciples out on a mission trip. And his plan, number one to do, thing to do, on his smartphone, on his Evernote to-do list, was go on a retreat with the disciples. That's what his plan was. Because he wanted to debrief them. What had gone well? What had not gone so well? Why? It's getting late. He's got to turn this ministry, this mission over to these knuckleheads. And he's got to get them ready. So can you, can you think about that a little bit in, ter- in terms of Jesus may be feeling a little pressure here to get these guys ready. They still don't get it and they won't get it until Pentecost. We know that. Is that me? I wonder what that is. The other thing you need to know is that the Passover is rapidly approaching. This was always a key time in the life and ministry of Jesus to teach and preach. And maybe not the least of which, the third thing that needs to be remembered is he had just received news of the gruesome death of his cousin John. So career-wise, personally, emotionally, I would argue that this is one of the tougher days in Jesus' life. So with that as a backdrop, let's look. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside, let's go on a retreat. Let's go by ourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Get some rest and finish this debriefing. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now, put yourself in the disciples' chair. They're tired. They're hungry. They want time with Jesus. So here come these thousands of people. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. They're going on the other side of the lake to get away, and the crowds beat them to the spot. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and said, Guys, let's get back in the boat. And go find another quiet place. Is that what he said? Uh Uh-uh. And this blows me away. Because that's what I would have said. Can y'all not leave me alone for a minute? I got to get these guys ready. Don't you understand? And he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Moved with compassion. The last thing I would have had would have been compassion for them. 
I need some time with my guys. And this word for compassion, y'all, this isn't a superficial feeling. As a matter of fact, the word that's translated compassion means to feel from deep within. As a matter of fact, the word could even be translated feeling from your guts. Deep feeling. Now let that roll around your minds for a minute. Think about our lives and how we do or do not feel for people. And I've already confessed to you, I would not have felt for these people at all. Yes, I would know Jesus wants me to be kind to them. Robbins told me this morning we were walking, kind and good or kind of kissing cousins. He'd want me to be good to them, kind to them. I would know that, but I wouldn't feel that. So how can we get there from here to here? Someone said the, the longest space in the world is 12 inches between the head and the heart. And it's true for me. And if I want to be like Jesus, I have to somehow get to the place where I care deeply for people even when I don't have the energy, I don't have the time, I don't have the interest. Jamie mentioned the jail. <clears throat> it, was, it was actually Metro Correctional Institute. It was actually state prison. Where, where Jamie went. But I also went there one time, and it was with his class, and we were led by a fellow who had a prison ministry. And I took the class I was teaching, I took them to expose them to the prison ministry. Well, this fellow who led, our, led that, uh, that uh, field trip, so to speak, also came to class, and I don't know if you remember this, Jamie, but he talked about this ministry he had called one-on-one, -on -one, where they would match up people outside the prison to visit people inside the prison. And I thought, well, that's nice. And then he read Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was in prison, and you did or did not visit me? And I thought, oh, dagger in the heart. I've never visited anybody in prison. So I went up to Tom and I said, do you think you could find somebody in prison that you could match me up with, that I could go visit, that I might have something to talk to him about? It took him less than 24 hours to find somebody in prison just like me. <laughs> so he calls me and he says, all right, here you go. Put your, you know, got to put your money where your mouth is. So I'll never forget to drive out to Metro Correctional Institute, same place we visited, to visit my prisoner for the first time. And that was my attitude. My prisoner. I was going to go visit him and bless him. So I'm driving out there and the whole time I'm arguing with God about, I don't want to go. I don't care for this guy. He's in prison. He ought to be. And there are people out there who ought to be with him. And I don't know why I'm going. And I wasn't happy about going. I didn't want to go. Robin will tell you I, I would go and I'd visit him at least once a month on Saturday afternoon. And when I got there, then you go through the dehumanizing process of being frisked and empty your pockets out and everything. And you go in and the door closes behind you, you go back in. And then, then I went into this huge gymnasium. And there were people all over the place. 
And there were husbands and wives. How did I know that? They were being very amorous in the bleachers. So I got two folding chairs and went to the center, center court of the basketball, far as away as I could from anything. I was going to do my hour with my visitor, and I was going to get out of there with my prisoner. And I sat down, and I waited for him because they had to bring him. And he came. But before he came, I sat there, still arguing with God. What am I even going to talk about? And I locked in to a young prisoner, couldn't have been more than 21, 22 years old. He was walking around the perimeter of the basketball court. And there at the end of his hand was a little boy that obviously was just learning to walk, a little toddler, holding on to that prisoner's hand. I thought to myself, what, what is that little boy doing with that prisoner? Where's his mama? And I thought... Somebody needs to get that boy away from him. And he circles, and he comes back in front of my vision again. And I thought, oh, that must be that little boy's father. And then the little boy got tired, and, and the young prisoner scooped him up and continued his walk with the little boy in his arms as he walked around. And he came back in front of my vision again, and I could see him loving on that little boy. And I thought to myself... Huh. That daddy only gets to spend two hours a week with his baby boy. Where did that come from? See, God was melting my hard heart. Not because I wanted to, but because I learned something that day. If we want to feel for people, we have to will it first. Right thinking leads to right behavior. And appropriate feelings then are generated. It's true in marriage. It's true in friendships. It's true in every facet of life. The will is the master of the heart. Jesus says, no big deal if you love those who love you. No big deal. The will's the master of the heart. But today I want us to also see not just the compassion of Christ and desire that in our life as disciples of Christ. Desire it, will it, and then let Him melt our hearts. Let's pick up. When the day was now far spent, His disciples came to Him and said, This is a deserted place. No golden arches in sight. And already the hours late, send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And furthermore, Lord, don't you remember we haven't eaten yet either? But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? You know, there, there are thousands of people. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five loaves, two fish. And then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, this is a curiosity to me. Jesus knew what he was going to do. And the question I want to ask you, could he have fed those ten to 12,000 people without the help of the disciples? Of course. He's the creator. 
He didn't need their five loaves and two fish. He could have made it happen. It says 5,000, but that's just the men. Probably 10, 12,000 people there at least. But he chose to partner with them. I don't think we need to let that just slide by us this morning. A little poem I learned probably sitting in this chapel. Christ has no hands but our hands to do work today. No feet but our feet to lead men in his way. No help but our help to bring them to his side. No tongues but our tongues to tell them how he died. You see, he still and will always choose to use us. Because the truth of the matter, he's no longer physiologically here. And so, this morning, when I come over here to Bivian, who's touching you, Bivian? Yes, it's Jimmy D. But who is it? It's Jesus. You see, we are the physical representation of Jesus on this earth. Make no mistake about it. If we don't do it in the flesh, He'll choose somebody else to do it, but He's going to do it through people. We can never... Ignore that. Now, I know, I know. I was thinking about myself this morning. I was thinking, Lord, I, I'm not, I, I, I need to be better if I'm going to preach. You know, I need to behave more. I need to be more spiritual. And I know some of y'all are thinking, well, yeah, Donovan, I hear you, but I can't sing or preach or teach. I'm not talented, and you don't know what I've done in my life. Yeah? Let me show you something. Five loaves, two fish, right? Five loaves, two fish. Now, the great thing about this being in all four Gospels, we get a little more detail from John's Gospel. Sixth chapter of John, I think along around verses 7 and 8, it says that it was a little boy's lunch. Okay? They say boy, not a young man. So he was, he was younger than 12, Jewish culture. This guy was probably 10 years old, little Irving, 10 years old, skips synagogue school to come hear Jesus, had his lunch, only one prepared, probably a Boy Scout. <laughs> he had lunch, and so big fisherman comes up and says, Hey, son, can we borrow your lunch for just, we'll bring it back in just a minute. There's nothing he can do with these Five barley loaves and two fish for 12,000 people. We'll be right back. We just want to show him this is all we got. Now, I've heard this story since I was a little boy. And you think about it. Five loaves, two fish, right? Ten, 12,000 people. The loaves have to be a big Italian loaves, don't they? Well, Lord, all we got are these five loaves. That's all we got. No, it's a little boy's lunch. As a matter of fact, John tells us that they were barley loaves. Barley is not your steel-cut oats. It's the poorest of the grains. This was the first po' boy sandwich right here. (laughs) 
This, seriously, this was the least. Five, I, I, I think about five stale heels. You know, I had two sisters growing up. I always got the heels. You know, I like them to this day. But five stale heels. How about the fish? A couple of words he could have used for fish. The word they use for fish is sardine is the best expression. Something you'd buy on the street. Pickle, about the size of your finger. Five stale heels, two sardine. That's what they got. You're not good enough? Hogwash. God, Jesus, delight in using the minimal. God loves. Look at the Bible. He uses liars. He uses murderers. He uses adulterers. He uses anybody who will offer themselves up because it's got nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. Now, this is one of those moments. I know the disciples afterwards, they're thinking, oh, man, you know, we blew it. When Jesus said, how many loaves you have, go and see, we should have said, Lord, it doesn't matter how many we got. All that matters is that you're here, right? That's all that matters. You're here. We blew it. How about that little boy? Think about Irving. A little 10-year-old boy. My lunch. Look what he did with my lunch. Do you think when he sat on the board of Galilee Christian Church, he let anybody in that board meeting say, we don't have enough money to do that? He would say, hey guys, have I told you about that? Yes, Irving, we know, we know. He gets home that day and is, goes in the kitchen. His mom's there and says, did you have a good day at school today, Irving? Mama, you wouldn't believe it. Jesus took my lunch. What, what do you mean? Did you give your lunch away again? How many times do I have to tell you you can't be giving your lunch away? You're going to get sick. Do you expect me to feed the whole Galilean countryside? And his eyes light up and he smiles. He says, Mama, you did. He says, Don't get smart on me, boy. I'll knock you into yesterday. Don't have enough. Not good enough. Not strong enough. Not town enough. It doesn't matter. Because Irving learned... And the disciples learn, little is much in the hands of the Master. Last thing. Let's look at the end of it here. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled everybody and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men 10 12,000 people this I'm amazed at this I just don't it's just fun to think about for years when I was at the college I would travel and preach on homecomings lots of times you know cover dish dinner Bring it in, you know. Remember those at East Point, Vivian? We, we, you know, it just, the tables just 
bowing from all the food, you know. And you eat. And when you're finished eating all that food, when you're finished, there's less food afterwards than when you started. Duh. Well, of course there is. We ate it. Except when Jesus is feeding. He had more after than before. Can't wait to see the video of this when we get to heaven. (laughs) Just mind-boggling. He had more afterwards. And there are 12 baskets. (laughs) What do you make of that? Well, you 12 guys, I'm going to be leaving pretty soon. You take that home, put it on your dresser, and don't forget that when I provide, when I satisfy, I satisfy completely. Little is much in the hands of the Master. Look at here. I don't know how many people are here today. I remember going over and being in with y'all over in Hateful in that cafeteria, and you're bigger now, and you got kids downstairs. And this is this is not even a little here. This is a lot. But in the hands of the Master, who knows? When I was serving as president, sitting over there on the hill. It was about this time of the year, and it may even be when Jamie and Stacy were there. It was early in my presidency, and cash flow was down to a trickle. Perrin would come home and tell you that, Vivian. I'm sure Perrin was on the board of trustees. So I didn't know what to do. We didn't have money for payrolls coming up, so I called the chairman of the finance committee, and he convened the finance committee, and we had a meeting, the administration, three or four of us, and finance committee and they finished the meeting and you know what they decided here's what the finance committee decided that we should come up with a plan to balance the budget that's what they decided they prayed and left and I was more stressed out after the meeting than before until one of our beloved trustees came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder, patted me on the back. He said, Jim, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. Now, some of you are thinking he handed me a check. Nope. Or maybe he mailed one when I, and I got it later. Nope. He didn't promise me one. Mm-mm. He just patted me on the back said it'll be all right and my stress left me why financial situation had not changed we had two pennies to rub together maybe but i knew he could make it all right and that's all that mattered i knew it do you know it little is much In the hands of the master. And Jesus satisfies completely. Right where we are. Just what we need right now. God, thank you for this great story that you preserved and given us today. And may it continue to resonate in our life. As we try to figure out who it is you want us to be. For your glory and your honor. In Jesus we pray. Amen.